0: On January 6, 2021, a violent mob stormed the US Capitol seeking to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. While our attention has been consumed with things like the pandemic, vaccines, and America's withdrawal from Afghanistan, today's guest reminds us that the investigations into the events of that day and the prosecutions of those responsible are just beginning. He's Scott McFarland this week on Story in the Public Square. and welcome to A Story in the Public Square. I'm Jim Lutus from the Pell Center at Salve Virginia University. And I'm
1: G. Wayne Miller with The Providence Journal.
0: Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, journalists, authors, scholars, and more to make sense of the big stories shaping public life in the United States today. This week, we're joined by investigative reporter Scott McFarlane. If you live in the greater Washington, D.C. area, you know him from Channel 4, the NBC affiliate there but others may have seen him on MSNBC, CNBC, and elsewhere, reporting on the January 6th prosecutions. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be here, Jim and Wayne. Uh, we've been uh, admiring uh, your reporting on the January 6th prosecutions, and you know, for those who maybe need a little bit reminder, let's just start with what basically happened on January 6th.
2: Rhetorically, That's actually a difficult question, Jim, because we don't know, or at least it hasn't been specified by prosecutors, whether this was an organic moment that just seemed to happen or whether it was somebody's singular idea to breach the Capitol, attempt to kill elected leaders and wreak havoc. So we're somewhere in between those two extremes. Here's what we know, that hundreds of people have already been charged as federal defendants for playing some role in the U.S. Capitol breach, be it assault, conspiracy, plotting and planning what equipment to bring, what communications devices to carry, damaging things, or in a large number of cases, simply being there unlawfully on the grounds as part of a number of people in a mob that clearly outnumbered police. We know we're closer to the starting line than the finish line of the prosecution and potentially of the investigation. In the first eight, nine months after January 6th, about 10% of those charged pleaded guilty, which means 90% still have to have their cases adjudicated. And in those cases, perhaps come some answers as to whose idea was this? What specifically triggered the breach? And exactly what happened inside?
0: Do you, I, I know from your reporting the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Do you use the term insurrection in talking about January 6th? So that's, a, that's a, a becoming a political
2: wedge issue, isn't it? You know, yeah. Insurrection is now a, almost like a Rorschach test between you know, Trump supporters and, and those who view what happened January 6th as an attempted overthrow of government. Um, insurrection comes up in court filings. Insurrection is in black and white in some part of this investigation or some part of these cases. So it's hard to avoid using the term as a reporter. But I'll note, in the months since early 2021, insurrection is now kind of a hot button phrase. But we can say without equivocation that there were people in the Capitol complex, according to prosecutors, Who were saying, yelling, or trying to hang Mike Pence. I've almost, almost lost count of the number of defendants who are accused of either vulgar or violent words about Nancy Pelosi. There were police officers hit with the following weapons, baseball bat, hockey stick, sharpened flagpole, chemical spray, steel-toed boots, tomahawk axe, knife. These are the things people brought on the campus that day, according to prosecutors, so I, we can debate politically the term we want to use for this, but this was a holy hellfire that happened January sixth.
1: So some of those people also and, and you've cited an FBI report to this effect in your reporting, some of those people also had body armor, they had military grade backpacks, they had helmets does does that seem like people who came to protest or demonstrate or do something more i'll give you more there are
2: people who brought at least at least one person wayne who's accused of bringing a tourniquet where do you bring a tourniquet uh, you bring a tourniquet to where you expect there to be a lot of blood uh, or possible loss of limb yeah that's an important specification in the charging documents prosecutors have given us so far defendants who are accused of coming with gloves goggles helmets why did they bring that specific equipment in in a granular way Wayne, that became important in the first felony case to go to sentencing from january 6th it was otherwise a lower level case a defendant from florida who pleaded guilty over the summer to the first felony he was accused of being inside the senate chamber january 6th pleaded guilty was sentenced to eight months in prison part of the legal filings back and forth prosecutors specified and said it was important that he had gloves, that he went in there ready for something. Um, they didn't say exactly what, but the equipment he brought was specified and clearly is an important component to this. Your prosecutors are trying to make clear to everyone that people who brought gear with them were not there for a peaceful protest.
1: You know, I, I've covered many, many demonstrations in my years at the Providence Journal the with hundreds of people, thousands of people, many different issues. The only time I ever saw people wearing military grade equipment was when the Proud Boys came outside of the state Capitol a a couple of years ago. So, you know, to me that, that says something. Were were any, you talked about some of the arms that, that people carried, were there guns? Did any people carry guns either on the grounds or into the Capitol?
2: According to federal agents? Yeah. Multiple people had guns. And I underscore that point because there was a statement from a political leader earlier this year that this didn't seem like a, quote, armed insurrection. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office have been clear. They think people were armed and they have evidence of it. There's a man from Dallas who specifically charged in January 6th with transporting a firearm in furtherance of civil disorder. It's a gun charge. They say he brought the gun with him from Texas to D.C. that day and was carrying it while in the mob. There's another defendant who was accused of having 11 Molotov cocktails in his pickup truck on Capitol Hill and was accused of being part of the mob. Feds say he had guns as well. Defendant from Maryland was among the first, if not the first, to be charged with carrying a gun January 6th. Yeah, they say there were guns, That doesn't count all the makeshift weapons. And one of the ones that just seems most impactful, and the one that comes up most commonly is the chemical spray, the bear spray. Not only did it, you know, desecrate what I would consider to be hollowed ground, the Capitol complex with stains and 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 fill the air, but it was obviously consequential to the police and to others in the mob that day. That may have been the most dispersed and ultimately the largest-scale weapon used that day.
0: So, Scott, one of the, one of the pieces of the story that, uh, that you've reported on and there's been other reporting on is the, 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 the discovery of pipe bombs on Capitol Hill uh, prior to the, uh, the, 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 the mob assembling at the Capitol. Um, what do we know about the story? What, if anything, can uh, we draw from it? I
2: believe it's the most underreported element of what happened January 5th and January 6th. The FBI has said two pipe bombs were left, one outside Republican National Committee headquarters, one outside Democratic National Committee headquarters on January 5th that evening. Let's put everything else aside. It's in a vacuum. Let's just consider that. Somebody put two live, active, destructive pipe bombs outside the National Party headquarters, and we don't know who it is. Everything else aside pretty important story, something we need to doggedly pursue. But it's actually even more important than that, because those pipe bombs, according to police, were an effective diversion of police at just the worst possible moment. They were discovered shortly before 1 p.m., according to internal emails we've obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Police threw up a bunch of red flags and obviously marshaled some resources toward that just as the mob was approaching. The police chief for Washington, D.C. has said those would have been very destructive if they went off. And they forced the evacuation of buildings, including the libraries of Congress, the, um, the two Library of Congress buildings, the Cannon House office building, just as the mob was approaching. What an effective diversion as a Capitol riot was about to begin.
1: So you say we don't know who placed them. I'm assuming that the the investigation of that, the FBI is continuing to look into who placed those there. And is that true, A and B? Is there any progress in that direction that you know of? So just, just to be clear, the
2: FBI hasn't said it's arrested anyone, Wayne. The FBI hasn't announced a suspect. But here's what the FBI has done as summer ended. Put up new videos, seeking new tips, trying to get more people to call in and report what they knew. Uh, who, give us some ideas. Give us some suggestions. Give us some leads. That indicates they don't have their person yet. Uh, and that's alarming on multiple levels. Alarming because, again, this could be somebody whose act was synthesized with other bad actors on January 6th. That could have been a part of a conspiracy. What's more, the Capitol Hill neighborhood is just that, Wayne. It's a neighborhood. Those pipe bombs weren't inside marble, you know, hallways. It's next to houses and playgrounds and schools and families. So there's alarm among people who live in that area that they haven't figured out the person who tried to put pipe bombs on their street. Could that person act again? But also, is this going to trigger copycats? Because we've already seen that this year, Jim and Wayne. We saw, of course, January 6th. Then in April, we saw a deadly attack with a car against a Capitol Police officer at a security checkpoint. Then August 19th, we saw a man accused of having a, who who said he had an explosive in his truck, accused of engaging in a bomb threat that forced the evacuation of those same buildings and shuttered Capitol Hill for hours. Then as the summer was ending, we had a person arrested again near Democratic National Committee headquarters. This time police say with a machete, a two foot bladed machete in his truck and a swastika painted on it. Is this the new normal on Capitol Hill? Are people now going to more forcefully and fiercely threaten the Capitol complex in a series of incidents that started January 5th with the placement of pipe bombs?
0: Scott, you know, I, uh, history, literature, there are lots of different examples of uh, groups using the mob to mask the movements of either individuals or small groups of people. And one of the things that struck me, and I know it struck other observers of the events of January 6th, was the apparent movement of men in tactical military gear uh, through the mob in a very purposeful manner. Um, Have you heard in your reporting uh, anything about what those groups may have been doing and who they might have actually been? Yeah, that's been, I think, at the epicenter
2: of the largest case so far. The biggest of the January 6 cases is the case against the accused Oath Keepers, an alleged far-right group that is accused of plotting and planning ahead of January 6th, of conspiring as to what to bring and how to do this. The Oath Keepers are accused of using what you just described, Jim, a military stack formation, using not only the tactical gear that Wayne referenced earlier, but doing it in a coordinated choreographed fashion uh, that has the hallmarks of military, of military going into enemy territory. They used a military stack, according to prosecutors, outside the Capitol complex to breach. Then, according to the latest court filings, they continued to use a bit of a stack inside the Capitol to traverse the area in there. These are defendants charged with conspiracy. And to make their conspiracy case, among the components of it, Jim, is that the prosecutors say they used a military stack with their gear, with their radios. But this case goes further. This case alleges planning that began. Weeks ahead, at least days ahead of January 6th, through the use of encrypted communication, involved traveling from, in many cases, Florida or elsewhere in the country to Washington D.C. But perhaps most striking, that group, the accused Oath Keepers group, is accused of staging and storing guns at a hotel in suburban Boston, Virginia, outside the city limits of D.C., where the gun laws are real tight. Stored them in Boston, Virginia, to ready them if or when Donald Trump invoked the Insurrection Act for a second wave, clearly never came to that. But that element of conspiring to stage guns is also an element of this conspiracy case. The the Oath Keepers case right now is the heart of the action legally. Most defendants, five of whom pleaded guilty by the end of the summer, agreeing to cooperate with prosecutors, agreeing to flip. And it's a real provocative question, Jim and Wayne. If you got a top-line defendant The heart of the action, and they're flipping. Who are they flipping on? What are they offering up? That's why this report, this story, and this case remain remarkably interesting.
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Ludis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist for the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Scott McFarland, an award-winning investigative reporter for the NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C. His coverage of the January 6th prosecutions has been simply stellar. You can see some of that on his Twitter page, at McFarland News. That's M-A-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-E-N-E-W-S.
1: So you've described three groups of defendants uh, from least to most serious, and maybe you can break those three groups down, starting with least serious people who unauthorized entry, but did not commit additional crimes. Maybe you can give us that group and the next two. Yeah, it's unofficial, but I, I view three tiers of cases. Um, low tier, mid
2: tier, high tier. Let me flip it, Wayne. Let me do the high tier first. Because we're just talking about it. The accused oath keepers, the accused, Three percenters, another far-right group. The Proud Boys, you referenced earlier, Wayne, accused far-right group. They're charged with conspiracy. In some cases, Wayne, they're accused of conspiring and planning as early as November, just after the election, to do some type of act in January to disrupt things. So that's a top-line group. Uh, in the top tier, it also include those accused of particularly ferocious physical attacks against police. The chemical spray, the hitting with a baseball bat, the hand-to-hand gothic combat that occurred. The mid-tier, it's actually quite curious. The mid-tier will include some people who had some level of assault, maybe a lower level assault while on the grounds, or maybe some higher level damage, broke something, went into a space they weren't supposed to be in in particular, like being in the Senate chamber, you know, being up against that House Speaker's lobby door where Ashley Babbitt was shot and she tried to break through the window. Um, the mid-tier cases are curious because I don't know where they're headed. Um, we don't see a lot of plea agreements in those cases. We've only seen one go out of sentencing. Um, it's, it's hard to know how judges are gonna go on those cases. Are they gonna go high on the sentences or are they gonna go low on the sentences? And I reference that because there's the low tier of cases. Those accused of simply being you know, unlawfully on the grounds, uh, illegally picketing or parading misdemeanor cases. We've seen those go to sentencing, and largely, if not exclusively, those defendants have avoided prison sentences. They're getting probation or time served in the jail, or they're getting some home confinement or court restrictions, and that's alarmed some people to see anyone charged with a January 6th crime um, avoid prison. This will alarm some people, but these are misdemeanor cases, and that's typically how misdemeanor cases are adjudicated in the federal courts. So those are our three tiers: low level, mid-level, high level. High level is the heart of the action legally. Mid-level, though, over the next half a year could be very interesting to watch. Because then we can see how judges view people who are in the Senate chamber, somebody who smashed a historical artifact, somebody who put hands on a police officer, but maybe didn't conspire or know before January 6th, they were going to create hell January 6th. So you want to channel some
0: focus and energy toward those cases too. Scott, do you have a sense of, so you mentioned the military tactics that seem to be employed uh, by some of these groups. Do you have a sense of the prevalence of any active uh, duty military members in, in, among the defendants or veterans or law enforcement?
2: an awful lot of veterans, an awful lot of active duty or, or previous military, um, and a lot of veterans, um, dozens and dozens, um, active duty military. We have one U.S. Marine Corps officer specifically charged, a man from Virginia, from Quantico, Virginia, a Marine Corps officer who's charged with, uh, forcing open a door, uh, near the police line in a very sensitive moment in a very sensitive space, January 6th. Mm-hmm. Military veterans from all across the country, people who had military ties once in their past. Law enforcement's an interesting question, Jim. There's a lot of police among those charged. Two now former local Virginia police officers. A DEA agent from California, a federal agent, was charged. Um, A police officer from Chicago who was, uh, I'm told, put on leave midsummer or or took a leave of absence midsummer. There's a lot of law enforcement ties here. Um, and that strikes a lot of people as distinctive, Jim and Wayne, because this is a crowd that confronted police, that assaulted
1: police, that turned police work into a nightmare
2: one day in Washington, D.C.
1: So you have spoken to some of the defendants, and I have not seen your reporting on that, nor have I seen anyone's reporting on that, so I'm, I'm very intrigued to know what they have said to you. Have they expressed regret? What if they said? What were they planning to do? Are they sorry? I mean, tell us what what you've learned from these people you've spoken to. So
2: I've talked to a, I've talked to a number of defendants, Wayne, um, including one who's currently in jail who calls me from the jailhouse phone. Um, the defendants who have open cases and are willing to talk to reporters, as you might imagine, are unapologetic and really ready to dig in uh, to say what they did was in their mind justified. Let me tell you about the case of Landon Copeland. Of Southern Utah and pre trial detention through most of 2021, uh, calls frequently, um, knows that I cover these cases closely and wants to say his piece, wants to speak his mind. Um, he says he believes Donald Trump will come back to office soon. He believes Donald Trump sent him and the others, directed them to be at or in the Capitol January 6th, and that because Donald Trump sent them, that it's okay that they were there. They were directed to be there by the chief executive of the country, even though Congress is a separate branch. Um, Unapologetics, how I'd characterize it. Uh, There's another defendant named Bigo Richard Barnett um, from Arkansas, who was in the DC jail for quite a while in pretrial detention, but has since been released. His attorney agreed to let me interview Mr. Barnett, um, who has a legal defense fund he's trying to raise money for. He didn't speak to the specifics of his case, perhaps because this was a conversation sanctioned by his lawyer, but Barnett gave me some insight as to what life is like inside the jail for the January 6th defendants. Listen to this. In the D.C. jail, which is about four or five miles from the Capitol itself in Southeast D.C., um, there's a separate wing where they hold the January 6th defendants, and they call it internally, the inmates do, the Patriot Wing. They're segregated from the rest of the population. I think everybody I've talked to about that thinks it's for the better because it keeps them, maybe it reduces any, you know, factional fighting. Uh, But nevertheless, in that section of the jail, it's been rife with disciplinary issues. Defendants being put in the hole according to defense lawyer filings. Um, Only a few of them have even been allowed work details, um, potentially because of behavior. Um, they start the day with the singing of the national anthem, um, and they are together. They also claim inhuman conditions, in their words, human rights violations, because amid Covid, the jail is under large restrictions to prevent the spread of the virus any further. Um, the washington d c. jail doesn't have the best reputation for having functional heat, air, water all the time in all places. Um, it's certainly not the Ritz-Carlton. Um, that being said, Um, the January 6th defendants who are being held there, being held there for committing federal crimes. And as one former D.C. inmate, a local from Washington, D.C., who served time many years ago there, welcome to the club. That's what life is like in the D.C. jail. Um, The protests we've seen this summer on behalf of the jailed January 6th defendants, many of them happened outside the jail itself. Um, So these are people in detention. Um, certainly don't mind speaking to reporters. They have very little else to do.
0: Uh, Scott, there is a select committee in the U.S. House of Representatives that's looking into the events of January 6th. What, you know, with, the, with the criminal prosecutions ongoing, what do you think the big issues that are that, that, that the Congress and the select committee need to be investigating? It's going to be a
2: separate world, Jim. I mean, the, the criminal prosecution is an investigation of the criminal activities that happened on the grounds, near the grounds, that day by a set of defendants. What Congress and the Select Committee can do is take a broader look at what were the conditions that gave rise to those crimes, what were the vulnerabilities that allowed that to be so impactful, what vulnerabilities remain that provide or present future threats. Uh, So it's a more holistic, more broad, and perhaps more of an introspection as to the politics or how the government may have contributed to January 6th. I talked to one of the January 6th committee members who said thinking that the committee's work will be wrapped up by the end of the year is really optimistic, likely will bleed into spring, maybe summer 2022. And now that's tenuous timing politically because I think part of the argument that was made earlier about having a special committee, you know, you know nonpartisan or bipartisan uh, special committee was to get it wrapped up and done in 2021 before an election year starts. This select committee, I think is gonna have its work go right into the heart of midterm elections.
1: So you, you worked on the Hill earlier in your career, you covered Congress, you have, you have sort of a long view and a, a broad perspective, put the events of January 6th in that context, if you can, and just give us, where does it fit in terms of what you have covered? Obviously, nothing like it, but give us your perspective on that. As somebody who was actually a congressional staffer once and worked in that
2: complex, who had, you know, had meetings in the Capitol and walked through the Capitol every day, it's was horrific. And it's, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, or, or hyperbole to say it's sacred space to those who work there. Not just because of the uh, you know, the aesthetics of, of of the beauty of the history of the murals and the marble, but because it's always kind of seemed sacrosanct, and it was very much not January sixth. I found it alarming that my buddies, my my old drinking buddies, were evacuating you know the Cannon Building, the Cannon House Office Building, because of the horrors that were occurring. I found it alarming that I I, I have buddies there who you know, I know are dads and moms and. They're running away for their lives, January sixth. Um, so it's hard not to have an emotive response when I every time I hear a new detail, read a new court filing about something I hadn't heard before. Um, the long view is actually quite alarming, Wayne, because it's kind of difficult to run a Congress. On, this, on, on the salaries they pay. You, know, it, it's, it's, uh, you don't go to work for Congress to get rich. You don't go to work to Congress to easily make your mortgage. It's, it's, it's a low paying job. It provides for a great future, but at that moment it can be difficult. Um, how much do you wanna send your 21 year old son or daughter to go work there right now? In light of the series of events that have happened this year, the scares and the, and, and the riot, um, is it really an attractive place to go work? I'm concerned about the long view that this type of event makes public service a bigger challenge to, to which to draw the best and the brightest.
0: Scott, that is a powerful point for us to leave it on. Now, he's Scott McFarlane his reporting is important and we encourage you to check it out. That's all the time we have this week, but if you wanna know more about story in the public square, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutus, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.